Hello and welcome to a special supplement edition of Tox Talk, a regular podcast from the Division of Toxicology at the University of Massachusetts Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm Matt Zuckerman, Toxicology Fellow. Now you might ask, how is a tox supplement different than a regular episode of Tox Talk? And essentially it's something that we feel would be very useful, especially helpful for people that are interested in learning toxicology, but it doesn't necessarily fit into the regular show. And this particular episode is, is incredibly important. The topic for this episode is the toxicology history and physical. And luckily we have Sean Ree and Adam Darnabid joining us today. And you might ask yourself, why is this important? And I think it's important for a number of reasons. Number one, you would never call your orthopedist and say, you know, there's a really bad broken bone, it's sticking out, it looks bad, come, come down, it's in the leg. And uh, you would never call your cardiologist and say, you know, the EKG just don't look right. Something ain't right. Please just come on down. You understand that having the terminology and knowing what your consultants are looking for is going to help them. Additionally, it tells them that you know what you're looking for and it makes you sound smarter and look better. And so knowing how to appropriately do a tox history and physical helps you help the patient but it also makes you look better in front of your consultants. And it's, it's painfully obvious when talking to somebody on the phone about a tox case if they knew what they were looking for. And you ask a question about the vital signs or about the, or about the reflexes, and there's an awkward silence or a pause, and you realize that they really didn't necessarily know what they're looking for. And that's understandable. It's not really um, something that's taught all that commonly. And so the point of this episode especially for up-and-coming residents or medical students, is to really get a sense for what's important on the tox history and physical. It's a supplement because some of the more seasoned uh, toxicologists out there might might want to skip this, might find it sort of old hat, but I think uh, going over it can really be helpful. And it's also really important because I think it reminds us that 95% of toxicology really is the patient in front of you, much like emergency medicine in general. You can do a bunch of complicated tests and, and comprehensive toxicology panels and, and treatments, but the real question is, what is the patient doing in front of you? And if you know what you're looking for, um, that's half the battle. And so if you listen to this podcast and you get down you know, the appropriate toxicology history and physical, then you are 90% on your way to becoming really a great toxicologist, or at least really impressing your tox colleagues when you call them with a question. A quick disclaimer about this supplement edition of Tox Talk. We should state that while the supplement edition of Tox Talk is helpful and beneficial and might strengthen immune function and overall healthiness, we make no claims as to treatment for cures or specific conditions and are completely unregulated by the FDA or the United States government. As such, we may be sold in bulk at your local GNC. Just be careful. Hello, I'm Adam Darnabit. I'm here with Dr. Sean Ree, and we're here to talk about the toxicologic exam today on Tox Talk. So today we were talking about, you know, before we got here, why the Tox exam is important, and at least from the perspective of the division here and the residency, this is how we base most of our decisions on toxicologic issues. It helps us, it gives us an idea of what's going on, and, and doing a thorough and thoughtful exam will give us a tremendous amount of information and help take care of the patient. So where I would add is that in many cases in the acute care scenario, uh, you're going to be dealing with a patient who's, you know, had some form of deliberate self-poisoning, uh, but you may not have information in terms of what it is uh, they had ingested uh, or were exposed to. And the purpose of this session is to go over certain elements of the physical exam, which may give you a clue uh, in terms of what you might be dealing with, and to second what Dr. Darnabit said, because that will, again, guide um, your management. So, and a lot of these discussions happen over the phone. It, it would be great if we could import a toxicologist to every bedside, but they're a limited resource, so... Well, we're working on telemedicine, but that's a different story. <laughs> and teleportation, too. Well, that's, uh, that's a bit further down the line. Um, we're talking major grant money for that. <laughs> we're getting there, slowly. But, you know, when you, when you approach this, an uh, easy way to look at it is just a general history and physical of every patient, but with some specifics. So you start at the top, and you can think about the history of present illness, and there's some large factors in there or some large things to consider, like what time did the ingestion happen? And what did they take? I know that's not always easy, but the size of the pill 
or whatever they took about the volume if it's a liquid. And what time did it happen is important because the first thing or one of the first things we're going to do is calculate the total dose that they may have taken, which is critically important and knowing when will help us guide their therapy in the future. One little extra point I'll make here about asking about the dosage or the pail or the size or the color. So I, like most emergency medicine physicians, roll my eyes whenever I hear somebody tell me that they take a blue pill or a white pill or a large pill or a small pill. It's, you know, you should know the names of your drugs. But when you're dealing with an overdose, um, especially the type or color or scoring or marking on the pill can be incredibly helpful. And sometimes you'll just get a baggie of pills. And I myself have been in a situation where I've just gotten a baggie of pills. And somebody tells you what it is. But sometimes, uh, I'm sure you've noticed, that the patients you're dealing with are not always the smartest or best historians. And so using a reference like either Micromedics or Hippocrates or even your own pharmacy and calling them or looking online and typing in very often the pill identifiers, if there's a score, the shape of the pill, the color of the pill, can really tell you more information about the pill or confirm it. I remember uh, visiting a hospital once for a transport and finding out that the pill bottle actually had two separate pills inside of it. So just literally spilling out the pills and looking at them can sometimes give you really valuable information about the nature of the exposure. Uh, the other major issue with knowing a time of an exposure is it can give you some sense of consistency with what you're seeing in front of you. Uh, there are some agents which are expected to act very quickly, where there are some where uh, symptoms may be delayed. Uh, so it's important to be able to piece together timing with what you may know of the ingestion. Uh, to give you some examples, something very common is that we know something like typical drugs of abuse, such as cocaine or heroin. These are drugs that are obviously going to be taken either by insufflation, pyrolization, intravenous use. Regardless, you're going to expect very rapid onset of symptoms. And so by the time that you're seeing the patient, uh, you know that uh, they're not going to be absorbing any more drug, and what you see is what you get, so to speak. Uh, so if you have a patient that uh, is reported to have, say, used intravenous heroin one to two hours ago, and they're asymptomatic, uh, unless uh, there's something wrong uh, in your information, you know the patient's probably going to be fine. On the other end of the scale, there are some pharmaceutical overdoses which may present with very late findings. Uh, a good example would be, say, an ingestion of bupropion. That patient may have a seizure, but that may occur 12 hours later, and the patient may be more or less asymptomatic up until that time. I was thinking the other important time of ingestion is the, uh, not the ideal, but maybe a, a huge bulk of toxicology would be a Tylenol overdose. If we have that time of ingestion on acute ingestion, we can take our blood level at the appropriate timing and then use our nomogram to help predict the toxicity of it, which is ideal why we need a good history with a time of ingestion. Time of ingestion is incredibly important, especially when it comes to Tylenol ingestions. And it really, it's important to think about it in the right context. It's kind of like a stroke. With a stroke, you really have to know the time of onset, the last time they were seen normal. With Tylenol, you really have to know when they ingested it. Now, a huge portion of the time, they won't know. They'll say it was sometime in the afternoon or the morning or they're not sure. It's, it's amazing. They might know the television show that was on when they took the pills. Maybe that'll be helpful. But if you can, narrowing down the time of ingestion really does help a lot in terms of determining uh, the toxicity and what's going to happen and, and whether or not the time force is appropriate. The other consideration are co-ingestions, which will also help us to a tremendous degree if the patient was say, imbibing some alcohol at the same time or decided to take some Benadryl with their ingestion, it certainly changes gastric motility and will change how we expect the presentation of the patient's disease course to evolve. Now, that's um, an important point to take. However, unfortunately, it is unpredictable to what extent uh, co-ingestion, such as an opioid or an anticholinergic agent, may affect absorption. Another point to take, though, however, is that um, if you are thinking about quote-unquote classic presentations, co-ingestions can, uh, for example, uh, obscure some of those factors. Uh, someone may take uh, a more stimulant agent, but if they have enough of a central nervous system depressant, uh, you may not see what you expect, or there might be a fluctuating course. The speedball or 
mixed injection of cocaine and heroin would be a fairly typical example. I think getting a good history on every patient is important, and you can see how this is of critical importance for a overdose-type patient. The next logical progression, I think, on a physical exam is certainly the vital signs, because vital signs are certainly vital and often overlooked, and it does also give us a tremendous amount of information, especially from afar talking to you on the phone. So I'd like to think the first place I'd look is the temperature. Are they hyperthermic? Are they not really febrile, but are they warm? And giving us some clues to what's going on with their metabolic system. Right. So the taking the temperature by itself, obviously the vast majority of patients you'll see will be normothermic. Uh, but in terms of factors that can affect core temperature up or down, uh, we'll take the hypothermic example. Uh, this is where you need to take the scenario of exposure uh, into account. There frankly aren't many agents out there that I can think of that are actually going to reset your hypothalamic set point and make you hypothermic. However, uh, if a patient is rendered comatose, uh, really by anything, uh, they're not going to take the normal measures to maintain uh, body temperature that uh, you would do even in your sleep. Uh, so eventually, that uh, individual will equilibrate to the ambient temperature, which even at an indoor room temperature will be hypothermic. Obviously, if uh, someone is found unconscious outdoors, um, even in what be normally considered comfortable temperatures, they may still become relatively hypothermic. Now, taking it the other way, hyperthermia in any potentially poisoned patient is a highly, highly concerning finding, because again, it's actually rather unusual. By and large, if you're seeing hyperthermia, it's usually due to some kind of psychomotor agitation. It's actually the metabolic energy created by movement, so to speak, that's generating it. Uh, think of someone who's highly agitated uh, from cocaine or amphetamines, and that would be the most common example. Uh, there are data existing showing that, uh, and this was done in New York City, I believe, that the fatality rate uh, related to cocaine use in the city jumped dramatically uh, after the temperature got past the high 80s uh, in Fahrenheit. Uh, other things that may also affect uh, uh, temperature uh, would be uh, factors such as uh, the neuroleptic malignant syndrome, where part of it is driven by motor function. However, it's also thought that might be a rare case where the hypothalamic set point uh, has been altered. Uh, lastly, though it's much uh, more unusual, there are a rare number of agents which can cause hyperthermia simply by uh, interference with oxidative phosphorylation, leading to a lot of uh, wasted uh, cellular energy generating heat. Uh, severe salicylate intoxication uh, has been known to do that, so obviously if you're seeing an aspirin poison patient, uh, hyperthermia would be a very, uh, very concerning uh, physical sign. I think that's just the one that pops in my head is the little febrile old lady with arthritis, you know, the hypotensive, tachycardic, and just slightly febrile, at least of what we're thinking, and sure enough, we're slamming sepsis, and she's got chronic salicylate toxicity. You know, uh, certainly it's something to keep on the differential, because we probably miss it more than we realize. The other vital sign I'd worry about, or I'd pay attention to, is tachycardia, and I think frequently underappreciated that... These young patients, some think sympathetic, or were thinking sympathomimetic, they're ramped up, they're aggressive, they're pacing around the room, but their heart rate's in the 140s. could happen other times, and I think it's important to pay attention to that and put it in a differential of ingestions and toxicities. Right, so you're going to be seeing uh, alterations in heart rate up or down quite frequently, and I would second what Dr. Darnvitt says, it requires close attention. You need to put into context in terms of the patient's behavior at the time. Perhaps if they are uh, notably visually agitated, uh, it might be something where after the patient is calm, you can reevaluate. Obviously, if it's still accelerated when the patient appears to be at rest, uh, it's worth further investigation. Uh, so the most obvious examples of causing elevations in heart rate would be sympathomimetic agents. Obviously, these would be um, agents such as cocaine uh, or amphetamines. Now, in this day and age, we also have to think about certain novel drugs of abuse. Uh, so there has been much attention made to uh, what are known as the bath salt preparations. Uh, the other wide uh, area of drugs which will cause accelerations of heart rate are any agents which have anticholinergic effects. And this is a wide variety of drugs, and for the most part, it's not something you're going to think about because it's a side effect of these drugs. It is not relevant to their therapeutic uh, mechanism of effect. Uh, so many of the older antidepressants, such as the tricyclics, uh, will have this property. 
uh, by and large, all the antipsychotics, either the older typical or newer atypical agents, uh, will have this property. Uh, there are other agents out there to bear in mind. The older antihistamines, such as diphenhydramine, uh, will cause uh, this increase in heart rate. Uh, in terms of medications given for analgesia, cyclobenzaprine, uh, under the brand name Flexril, uh, is essentially a tricyclic antidepressant structurally and can cause notable tachycardia as well. Now, flipping the equation around the other way, uh, if you see a very slow heart rate, again, that should be interpreted in the context of the patient's overall appearance. Uh, sufficient doses of any CNS depressant, uh, if it does not have other properties such as anticholinergic effects, may cause some mild resting bradycardia. These would be things like sedative hypnotics uh, or opioids. But generally, the bradycardia is not too severe, maybe in the low 60s, high 50s in an adult. Uh, much slower than that, and you would really start considering about mostly cardiovascular uh, agents. Of course, these would be the calcium channel blockers, the beta blockers, digoxin, and centrally acting antihypertensives such as clonidine. And again, much like in tachycardia, you have to take the bradycardia into context of the patient's appearance. Uh, in cases of poisoning with a calcium channel blocker or beta blocker, provided there are no other CNS depressants on board, the patient will maintain a relatively normal level of consciousness and mentation, even with uh, significant hemodynamic effects. Uh, by the time that patient has become obtunded, it is due to severe cerebral hyperperfusion. On the flip side, agents such as clonidine uh, have independent CNS depressant effects. They do cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, this shouldn't be surprising because drugs like clonidine are more increasingly prescribed for psychiatric indications such as attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. Uh, so you may have a patient who hemodynamically may not have significant effects aside from some tolerable bradycardia, but they may have profound drowsiness. Uh, digoxin is a much more complicated case because certainly given that it's usually seen in chronic toxicity in a medically complex population, yeah, you certainly can see um, some kind of lethargy uh, to varying degrees in these patients, uh, which may not be a direct effect of hemodynamic compromise. You know, it's challenging to think about these patients, and as you can see, there's many, many nuances, which is, you know, one of the reasons we're providing this is to help you think about the exam and the history in a logical fashion to present the information so we can give you the best help we can. So when you're taking a full set of vitals, of course, it has to involve blood pressure, you know, hyper or hypotensive. And again, in the right clinical setting, let's think about an overdose that would give you hypotension versus an overdose that will give you hypertension. And again, as with the heart, uh, heart rate, you'll need to interpret this in the context of the patient. And, and don't overlook even basic things. Does the patient have a baseline history of essential hypertension? Have they taken their antihypertensive agents? Uh, they may have notable elevations of blood pressure, which are actually not related to uh, their acute presentation. In terms of causes of uh, alteration in blood pressure, again, you'll find these quite commonly. Uh, by and large, most hypertensive patients are experiencing effects of a stimulant or sympathomimetic agent, uh, which we covered in the discussion in terms of heart rate. Uh, there are other some stranger things out there, such as your hymbine, which uh, occasionally crops up from time to time. Uh, whereas uh, with low blood pressure, it's going to sort of depend on as a matter of degree. Uh, patients with uh, severe CNS depressant toxicity may manifest some hypotension just as a result of that alone. So a simple intoxication with an agent such as a barbiturate or benzodiazepine may manifest with some mild hypotension. Bear in mind that could be exacerbated by other factors such as based on health conditions and uh, volume status. I think that's a good point with the volume status. Are they manifesting a reflex tachycardia to the hypotension too? Are we seeing the vital signs we expect to see in the patient's clinical setting? And that's, that's an example of context. The patient's main toxicity may be gastrointestinal, if it's from, say, something like ricin, uh, which is going to cause immediate damage to the gastrointestinal tract, or acute poisoning with a metal salt, such as inorganic mercury or arsenic. Uh, their main problem is gastrointestinal fluid losses, which will then, by normal physiologic reflexes, affect the vital signs. Uh, in terms of uh, other causes of bradycardia, obviously, as we talked about with the heart rate, the cardiovascular agents... Uh, will certainly uh, be a cause here. 
Again, you want to also interpret that in terms of uh, the vital signs by and large with a calcium channel blocker or beta blocker. You would expect some form of bradycardia in conjunction with the hypotension. Obviously, the patient is profoundly hypertensive, yet tachycardic, then those agents become far less likely uh, uh, to be in play. Uh, you also may see hypotension as a manifestation of other side effects of an agent. Uh, good examples would be tricyclic antidepressants and antipsychotic agents uh, do have some peripheral alpha-1 antagonist properties, which will cause direct vasodilation, uh, again, leading to uh, hypotension. Uh, this might be, again, that patient who is tachycardic and a little hypotensive, um, and that may all be drug effect. Just thinking about the, the next part, respiratory rate, it's not just the, the intrinsic rate itself. Think it in the context of the patient. If the patient's breathing 24 times a minute, good, grand, or great, they're a little fast, but when you're looking at them, are they breathing 24 full tidal volume breaths a minute, and are they getting faster, or are they breathing 24... 100 cc breaths a minute, very shallow and rapid. What does it look like? Let's, again, take this in clinical context, but that can give us a tremendous amount of information too, right, Sean? That's correct. Obviously, when people think of alterations of respiratory rate in toxicology, their first thought are uh, opioids and barbiturates, which will cause respiratory depression. And by and large, that will be manifested by a overall decrease in respiratory rate, but Adam's point is well taken. It's all about the efficiency of the breath, or another way of thinking about it is don't just think about what their respiratory rate is, but think about what's their minute ventilation. How efficient is each respiratory cycle? Uh, opioid intoxicated patients may have a relatively normal respiratory rate, say somewhere between 8 to 12 breaths per minute, but they may be very shallow breaths, so in fact uh, their overall minute ventilation will be depressed. Uh, obtaining an arterial blood gas in this patient would then uh, demonstrate uh, CO2 retention. Uh, in terms of accelerations of respiratory rate, uh, that's obviously a rather broad uh, differential and again has to be taken into the context of the patient's exposure. Certainly uh, any exposure to an inhalational toxicant, irritant gases, uh, are going to cause increased respiratory rate simply due to uh, direct uh, pulmonary damage, leading to impaired gas exchange, and increased uh, respiratory drive as a result. And this is things such as chlorine, ammonia, or say aspiration of a liquid hydrocarbon. Now uh, those are all going to be causing increased respiratory rate from uh, damage directly to the pulmonary tissue. Uh, another broad differential to consider though in toxicology is that many agents we deal with uh, are going to cause some form of metabolic acidosis. And you want to keep in mind is, is this tachypnea I'm seeing simply the reflex uh, tachypnea from a metabolic acidosis, especially let's say you don't seem to find anything wrong with your lungs uh, by other vital signs or uh, examination. Uh, probably the classic example that comes up is aspirin or salicylate intoxication. Uh, it causes obviously severe metabolic acidosis and bad poisoning. Bear in mind that salicylate on its lonesome does cause uh, tachypnea as a direct stimulant effect on uh, the medullary respiratory drive centers. Uh, but sometimes it may be your only clue of what's going on. Uh, severe lactic acidosis due to metformin toxicity doesn't really have a lot of calling cards otherwise. Uh, you'll just see someone who is uncomfortable and breathing fast, uh, and that may be your only initial clue uh, that anything is amiss with the patient. It's hard, and again, keep coming back to why we're doing this. These patients usually aren't always forthcoming with information. They don't want to tell us what they've ingested, they don't know what they've ingested, or for other reasons they can't tell us what they've ingested. So finding the pieces and putting together a good history and a physical will help us kind of tease out some of the nuances and guide therapy, especially early on in their care before we can get adjunctive information. Or the other scenario may be if the patient is having toxicity due to an effect of chronic use or an adverse drug event. Uh, both the patient and the provider may not be aware that this is even the case. Again, chronic salicylate toxicity being very hard to uh, diagnose. Um, we referenced uh, lactic acidosis for metformin. Again, that's very often with therapeutic use, uh, where the patient may have been taking the drug for a long time uh, without ill effect. Uh, wrapping up discussions on vital signs, we'll touch briefly on pulse oximetry, as that's often taken. Uh, by and large, it's uh, if you take away environmental factors, the patient's nail polish, pretty reliable. Uh, but I'll throw the question back at Dr. Darnbid. Can you think of scenarios where the pulse oximetry might be misleading in a toxicology patient? 
I can one pops into my head is anything that alters the hemoglobin, like carbon monoxide poisoning, where our pulse oximeters will fail to pick up the uh, hemoglobin that is bound to carbon monoxide versus the hemoglobin that's bound to oxygen. And it makes it challenging for us because somebody has a SAD of 98%, say, and they're doing quite poorly, at least in front of your eyes. You know something's awry, you just can't figure it out. And so, for those listening, uh, this is an example where you also need to understand your diagnostic technology. The standard pulse oximeters uh, are reading the infrared wavelengths emitted by oxy and deoxyhemoglobin, calculating the ratio, and that's what gives you the oxygen saturation reading. If uh, abnormal hemoglobin, such as carboxyhemoglobin, if their wavelength is too close to one of those poles, you're going to uh, have a misleading figure. The opposite end of the spectrum uh, would be, of course, methemoglobinemia, uh, which will give you a factitiously low uh, oxygen saturation reading, irregardless of the act, what the actual methemoglobin uh, level is. Uh, a good clue, though, would be this is classically the patient that may appear cyanotic, has a low pulse oximetry, yet has no response to oxygen whatsoever. Uh, if you are seeing this and you don't have any obvious signs of cardiopulmonary disease, uh, that hemoglobinemia should be on your differential and obviously can be uh, distinguished with uh, <clears throat> coaxymetry testing either peripherally or through a uh, standard blood gas analysis. So we're getting into some of my favorite, favorite topics in toxicology, and I have to say that uh, this is a really important point. Classically in med school, we're all trained, you know, if somebody fails the uh, to respond to the hyperoxia challenge, essentially fails to respond to 100% FiO2, then it must be a shunt. And this is really um, one of the exceptions here. It can be a shunt, but in toxicology, it can also be from a functional anemia. And that could be carboxyhemoglobin, it could be methemoglobin, it could be sulfhemoglobin. But in addition to shunt, uh, when somebody doesn't respond to increased FiO2, you also want to think about functional anemias. The next thing, you walk into the room and hopefully everybody takes a moment to look at the patient and see what they appear as. I think it can give us a tremendous amount of information. I, I understand when you walk into a room and the patient's aggressive and agitated, or agitated and not aggressive, but, but what do they look like? I, I like to think of the dichotomous outcome. You know, they're altered, they're not quite there, they're hyperactive, but they're... Uh, benignly hyperactive. They're picking at stuff in the bed. They're not really responding to you appropriately versus the agitated, aggressive, hyperactive person who's agitated and aggressive to your six police who are helping to provide medical care for him. I think that's an important dichotomy when you at least first look at the patient. So to pick up what uh, Dr. Dharma was getting at, uh, when we think of classically an agitated patient, we are thinking of someone who is from a behavioral standpoint, very aggressive and is directing that aggressive behavior uh, at themselves or at other uh, at other staff, which may be due to something as simple as just as ethanol intoxication, uh, but again, may also be due to stimulant drugs uh, such as uh, amphetamines, cocaine. But if someone has agitated behavior, uh, but does not appear to necessarily be oriented to passers-by or to people in the room, if it's more of a restless behavior, uh, but not particularly well organized, not poorly coordinated, um, and uh, the patient's speech, for example, is very mumbled, uh, and uh, they have difficulty or an inability to orient uh, to the speech of uh, someone examining them, uh, you may then want to consider uh, the anticholinergic uh, toxidrome or anticholinergic delirium, again, which is a potential effective of many drugs, uh, both pharmacological uh, or drugs of abuse. Uh, occasionally, you will encounter individuals who attempt uh, to become intoxicated through um, uh, ingestion or smoking of uh, detura species plants. Uh, this would be commonly known as Jimson weed uh, through most of North America, also known as the moonflower. I believe there is something called angel trumpet in Hawaii, which is also uh, contains those properties. Uh, but that is an important distinction um, because the anticholinergic delirium patient uh, generally is going to be less dangerous uh, to bystanders. Um, and whereas you may choose aggressive uh, sedative medications with the sympathomimetic patient, uh, 
uh, other agents such as physostigmine may actually be more helpful in someone with severe anticholinergic delirium. In terms of uh, other ends of the spectrum, CNS depression gives you, unfortunately, an incredibly broad differential. Uh, we like to say uh, about not of anything is going to put you into a coma. Uh, so if you have someone with uh, depressed mental status or coma and normal vital signs, uh, unfortunately, that's going to be a lot of cases you're going to see these days, and it can be very difficult to tease it out. Uh, at least you know then that hemodynamically you haven't much to do with them, and then you just need to attend to certain basic housekeeping, such as maintaining their airway and adequate oxygenation. Other things you might find that don't really fall into either extremes, there's not really a good uh, one-liner for it, like sympathomedic or anticholinergic. Uh, I tend to like the phrase dissociative, and where we tend to see this most in a substance abuse population is uh, those who abuse large doses of dextromethorphan. Now bear in mind that dextromethorphan is a cough suppressant owing to its weak peripheral opioid effects. Obviously get some sinus penetration to get to your cough receptors. Uh, however, in high doses, and the reason why this is uh, abused, uh, is it will start interacting with NMDA receptors and behaving much more in the fashion of ketamine. So uh, for those EM practitioners listening to this, uh, you've probably seen what someone behaves like uh, when placed under ketamine for procedural sedation, and that gives you a clue. That patient may vary from responding to you briefly uh, to questions and then uh, essentially uh, being apparently obtunded yet easily arousable to someone who's profoundly comatose, or if they are having an emergency reaction, uh, frankly delirious or psychotic. Now again, dextromethorphan would probably be the most common agent uh, where you would see uh, this type of activity. Uh, however, bear in mind that uh, some individuals do illicitly obtain uh, ketamine from various sources. There are ketamine derivatives used in veterinary medicine, which have been known to be abused by, uh, say, staff at a veterinary clinic with access to this drug. Uh, and more recently, uh, there have been novel uh, ketamine derivatives synthesized purely uh, as drugs of abuse. Uh, an agent uh, called methoxetamine, or MXE for short, uh, recently came to attention uh, earlier in 2011, uh, and again, that's uh, something of a challenge because, again, there is no background data, unlike, say, something like uh, the veterinary drugs. Uh, there is no background information. It was synthesized purely uh, for recreational purposes. I would like to uh, think that out of all the stuff our hospital does well and advertises, I'm still waiting for an advertisement that we're the dextromethorphan overdose center of excellence or, you know, the... Uh, I don't, not sedative hypnotic, but the quetiapine overdose center of excellence. Uh, what Dr. Darm is referring to is that these are things we typically see in our institution. Uh, bear in mind, however, that patterns in substance abuse are highly regional, uh, so you may see things that are not um, uh, necessarily common in other areas. One thing I'll throw out is that uh, recently it was brought to my attention, that at least anecdotally, uh, from people who have worked in the area that the Washington, D.C. area is experiencing an increased prevalence of PCP use, uh, which otherwise is quite rare. Uh, so just keep that in mind. I think the uh, the next step in our physical exam, I'm, I said trying to retain some logical order to it, is the appearance of the patient. More in the sense, are they in the bed comatose? Are they in the bed looking like they've just been left out in the rain for three days? Are they awaking easily to voice? Are they awaking easily to deep, 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 painful stimuli? Are they not in the bed, but crawling up the walls? What does the patient look like? What does it take to wake them up? I know we've hit on that previously. You know, how deep is their coma? How do they look going back to the things you don't want to miss? Somebody who's hypothermic because they've been in a ditch for the past 48 hours because they've overdosed on something. Moving Right down the list, you know, if they're comatose or if not, is taking a look at their eyes and what do you see? The pupils seem to be a great source of information, but not just their pupils. Any nystagmus? What direction is the nystagmus? Is it exhaustible? Does it change? Nystagmus is one of those things that's incredibly important, but I have to say I find it really frustrating to evaluate and measure which direction is the fast direction, which direction is the slow direction, is there real nystagmus, is it only on extreme gaze. I have to say Scott Weingart and uh, our colleagues over at EM Crit have a really nice discussion of using the iPhone actually for determining direction of eye movement 
and uh, we'll put a link up to that on our website. But it simplifies things a little bit. There's there's always an app for that. And the pupils, are they reactive? Are they pinpoint? Are they very large? Are they reactive? Giving us a good element of history for that. So the cliche, of course, is that the eyes are the window to the soul. Uh, I always found it to be rather trite. However, it's quite informative uh, in our patient population. Now, again, there are sometimes going to be issues where this is not going to be helpful uh, if the patient has had prior cataract surgery. Uh, so something to keep in mind. Now, taking um, two things separately, we'll look at the pupils first and then look at ocular motor function second. Uh, now, pupils are either going to be large or small, and then you also want to get a sense for how well do they react. Uh, bear in mind that people have uh, you know, differing normal resting uh, pupillar diameter. As a general rule, it seems to get smaller the older a patient gets. So what's the normal pupillary diameter for an 18-year-old will not be the same as a patient who is uh, 65 years old. I thought it was because all my 65-year-olds are on chronic narcotics for their arthritis. Well, there's that too, uh, but you have to understand what if, for example, a patient has chronic glaucoma and if they're taking um, timolol drops, that's going to affect um, their pupillary gamma as well, so you need to know what they're normally taking. Use an extreme example, if someone's just come back from the optometrist uh, and have just gotten their cyclogel drops, well, guess what? That's going to essentially obscure any other findings you might want to look for. But outside of those special cases, if you're looking at pupillary dilation, usually you're looking at something either in the sympathomimetic or anticholinergic uh, arenas. The other feature in the anticholinergic patients is that if they have severe dilation, they're also going to experience problems with accommodation, uh, which means that their near vision uh, will be impaired. They may be able to make things out from 50 feet away quite well, but they can't read anything in front of them. However, since many of these patients are also quite delirious, it may be difficult to uh, ascertain their visual acuity. In severe sympathomimetic toxicity, dilated pupils are a fairly reliable sign. Uh, I will caution in the anticholinergic toxidrome, it's highly inconsistent and uh, don't count on pupillary responses either to rule in or rule it out. Going the other direction in terms of meiosis, the thing that people most commonly think about are the opioids, and you'll find that uh, quite consistently. Now, someone who's on heavy chronic doses may have smaller pupils just as a fact of that, and they are not, in fact, clinically intoxicated. Uh, there are, of course, historical agents which uh, do not uh, necessarily cause meiosis, even though they're in the opioid drug class. Uh, drugs, I believe, uh, meperidine uh, was classic on that list, and I believe pentazacine as well didn't necessarily consistently cause that. Uh, for sedative hypnotics, like the benzodiazepines, it's rather inconsistent. They may have meiosis, they may have relatively normal pupils. Uh, so I wouldn't hang my hat on that in the undifferentiated comatose patient that normal pupil size rules out uh, severe sedative hypnotic effect. The concern is, like you said, with the pinpoint pupils and the opiate overdose, although it's great when we see it, I'm also... At least my understanding that if they don't have it, like you said, I don't know if you would take that as less likely that they took an opiate for their uh, comatose presentation, or would you look for ancillary information to help you with eliciting what their cause of coma was? Right, and certainly if you had pinpoint pupils, it makes a big difference if you're talking with someone who's more or less conscious versus someone who's obtunded and has a respiratory rate of 3. Another important uh, common agent you're going to see, and we touched upon the effects of clonidine earlier when we were talking about vital signs, uh, but again, it's a sympatholytic agent, so you will see some meiosis as well, uh, and this has led to some of the confusion of giving naloxone to these patients because they will present uh, with depressed mental status, meiosis, and some bradycardia and hypertension. We're not going to touch on the naloxone controversy, but just to bear in mind that there are other agents out there. Um, now, certainly if someone has severe cholinergic toxicity, you will see pinpoint pupils. Now, in the United States, uh, severe cholinergic poisoning is fortunately quite rare. Uh, but again, since this broadcast is generally uh, directed towards uh, an acute care emergency medicine-focused um, audience, it's something you want to keep in mind, for example. 
if you see a large number of patients who are coming in with uh, depressed mental status, uh, neuro neuromuscular findings, and they're all meiotic, you have to think about um, a chemical nerve agent. Uh, or if you are happening to be working in an agricultural area that grows a lot of tobacco, uh, severe intoxication with nicotine uh, may also cause this presentation as well. Now going on to the oculomotor findings, uh, the presence of nystagmus uh, can be seen with a large number of agents, the most common, of course, being with simple ethanol intoxication. Uh, but most agents are going to, say, affect uh, cerebellar function of coordination may also present with nystagmus. Uh, intoxication with lithium or many of the anticonvulsants such as phenytoin, you may manifest uh, nystagmus. So this will be the typical horizontal nystagmus. In cases of the serotonin syndrome, you may see this as well. Occasionally it's a very coarse form of nystagmus, which sometimes gets labeled as ocular clonus. Uh, the ping-pong pupils was also noticed uh, classically in monoamine oxidase inhibitor intoxication. Uh, I think we're talking about a lot of classic cases in this, and with, with the caveat that classic implies, you know, maybe 15% of the presentation, so most of these things are great if you have them. If you don't, it certainly doesn't rule things out or in, and with the nystagmus, it would be a great time to go find a bow tie and a white-haired gentleman and pull out your early editions of physical examination books when there's all kinds of nystagmus in there described, but some of these are still important for us. Right. Uh, now, if you're starting to see more omnidirectional or vertical clonus, uh, that's obviously a much more narrow differential. Uh, classically, it's mostly been seen with uh, fencyclidine or PCP intoxication, but any other drug with similar properties, such as ketamine, uh, the veterinary derivatives, or methoxetamine may manifest uh, similar findings as well. In other more obscure cases, at least in children, intoxication um, with centroides or bark scorpion venomation can cause some rather bizarre roving eye movements that are not nystagmus uh, per se. You say with the bark scorpion intoxication, some of the pupil fakeouts, we've mentioned jimson weed. This sounds like a high-yield board review discussion, too. All the things that love to show up on all sorts of different exams. Next in our list of physical exam things to look at, a cardiac exam. We mentioned the vital signs earlier, tachycardia versus not, and two that I picked up on in the past month, although not directly toxicologic, were IV drug abusers who were tachycardic and had profound murmurs with ruptured valves secondary to huge vegetations and almost fulminant heart failure. Every little part of the exam helps. Two young people now waiting for their sepsis to resolve to get valves, but certainly picked up on physical exam. So most of the things we'd be concerned about in the cardiovascular examination has been touched on in the discussion on vital signs. I will add something. Uh, do make sure to check the peripheral pulses, and you're really looking at the quality of the pulse. Uh, let's take an example of any patient whose hypotension is mainly driven by peripheral vasodilation. Uh, they're going to have rather strong pulses, um, whereas let's say someone's uh, uh, ultimately hypotensive from fluid losses, say from uh, gastrointestinal injury, they're going to have more thready pulses. Uh, the calcium channel blockers, poisoning, you know, we tend to think of them as being myocardial depressants, but they're also going to cause peripheral vasodilation. So you will see unexpectedly strong pulses in these patients relative to their hemodynamic status, whereas in beta blocker intoxicated patients, those pulses are going to be far less um, prevalent. I think the the next part of the physical exam we should consider is certainly the skin or the diaphoresis versus not diaphoresis. And, and looking at your patient and seeing how sweaty they are, it certainly can be helpful, but it also certainly can be challenging in the right clinical context. Is it hot outside? Is it cold outside? Is it hot in the patient's room? Is it cold in the patient's room? And how do we best check? My, at least, reflex this time is a gloved hand in the patient's axilla as a good source to see whether they're diaphoretic or not, but it certainly can provide some great information. Right. So one area where the presence of diaphoresis helps is if you're trying to differentiate a sympathomimetic from anticholinergic syndrome. Uh, as most listeners will be aware, there's a lot of overlap in terms of mental status and vital signs, and the anticholinergic toxidrome can be frustratingly inconsistent from one patient to the next. However, if someone is demonstrably sweating, that makes anticholinergic toxicity highly, highly unlikely. Now, in terms of other causes for diaphoresis outside of uh, sympathetic agents, 
uh, certainly considering serotonin syndrome, diaphoresis is quite prominent. Uh, if someone, a patient is hyperthermic for other toxicologic reasons, they might also uh, have heavy diaphoresis. Uh, severely aspirin-intoxicated patients classically have uh, profound diaphoretic reactions. But again, the presence of diaphoresis has to be taken in terms of the big picture. It can be, in the modern era, somewhat hard to pick up for because, by and large, we are examine these patients in comfortable temperature uh, environmentally controlled departments. So you need to know exactly how they were found and what uh, what the weather was like outside. You know, we think of some pathomimetic patients being sweaty. However, uh, let's say that you are a practitioner uh, out in the desert state somewhere, you're in New Mexico or Arizona, and your patient has been on an extended amphetamine binge. Uh, however, you know, they've been out in the desert and they are volume depleted. They simply may not have any sweat uh, due to volume losses and the fact that in that environment it's going to evaporate quite rapidly. Whereas if you're in a more humid environment, you're in Hawaii or in Florida, that might be easier to pick up uh, due to higher ambient humidity depending on the time of year. Uh, whereas unfortunately for picking up somebody in the middle of winter, it might be a wash depending on uh, uh, the environment they are in, indoors, outdoors, and uh, how much clothing they happen to have on um, at the time. Uh, certainly, you want to look for signs of things such as uh, cyanosis, perhaps suggesting that hemoglobinemia, or just severe uh, respiratory depression or pulmonary toxicity. Uh, since we're going to be focusing mostly to the acute care setting, obviously there are issues with uh, certain chronic intoxications which can cause skin and nail findings. We'll leave those off uh, for another discussion. I was just thinking about, you know, the ambient temperature and weather. Now that we are, I think we're approaching the end of fall for us, so it will be Arctic conditions very shortly for the next six months of... Well, now the leaves have just started changing color, so we're just entering autumn. <laughs> Blistering, freezing cold temperatures for us and six months of darkness. The next part, pondering, is bowel sounds. Often left off on physical exams, at least I find, and, you know, hypo versus hyperactive bowel sounds, and what defines both. If if I recall correctly, to, to say somebody has absent bowel sounds, that's a five-minute exam in a quiet room. I can't recall the last time I actually spent five minutes examining a patient. Yeah. And well, you certainly want to make that, you can make still in a qualification of it's increased versus rapidly decreased. Uh, not necessarily the highest yield part of the exam, uh, you know, classically, it's described as having absent or hypoactive bowel sounds with anticholinergic toxicity. I wouldn't hang my hat on it. The presence of bowel sounds doesn't rule it out. If they are absent, it certainly helps. Uh, increased bowel sounds, uh, obviously, are going to be due to some form of increased GI motility. Certainly, any agent that's causing injury to your gastrointestinal tract uh, will do this. Uh, you may see patients who are using laxatives. That's obviously going to increase bowel sounds. Uh, sometimes in serotonin syndrome cases, you'll see um, hyperactive um, bowel motility as well, even leading to frank diarrhea. I think the other important but often left out part of the physical exam is a good reflex exam. And not just testing reflexes at the patellar reflex, but testing for ankle clonus and upper extremity reflexes can be very important, providing us with a lot of information, especially some sensory motor increase in their tone or what's going on with the patient. Neuromuscular findings are quite prominent in uh, certain pharmacologic uh, overdoses, uh, particularly when you're looking at things such as serotonin syndrome or neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Taking serotonin syndrome, uh, you are definitely going to see uh, hyperreflexia, sometimes bordering onto frank clonus, whereas in the neuroleptic malignant syndrome, due to the severe rigidity, they may actually have absent reflexes. Now, hyperreflexia is not limited to uh, cases of serotonin syndrome. Uh, it may also be seen uh, in the course of acute or chronic lithium toxicity as well. Also, in use of ketamine-like drugs, increased reflexes and clonus is also described. What's also notable is that in serotonin syndrome, for reasons that remain obscure, is that the neuromuscular findings are more prominent in the lower extremities versus the upper extremities. So if you happen to see this, uh, keep that in your differential. Uh, other aspects of the neuromuscular exam to consider is overall muscle tone. Now, if a patient has a depressed level of consciousness, simply move their arms and legs passively and just see how much resistance they're giving you. Uh, it's generally not subtle if they have much increased rigidity because 
in a conscious patient, they may be, may be actively trying to relax but simply cannot do that uh, in, say, a moderate case of serotonin syndrome. Uh, most NMS patients are too obtunded by this point to uh, give you an opinion uh, either way. Now, if you happen to see clonus, it, again, doesn't necessarily always mean you're dealing with something like serotonin syndrome. Uh, anecdotally, I've observed that patients who are comatose from any number of generic CNS depressants will manifest some clonus. I don't have a great explanation for this. Maybe it's an upper motor neuron release sign. It's hard to say. One agent in particular that's been explored for this aspect is uh, crisoprodol, or goes under the brand name Soma. It's a its own sort of unique CNS depressant, uh, probably acting at the GABA receptor in a barbiturate-like fashion. Uh, but there have been many published reports of serotonin syndrome-like findings with this agent, even though it has no serotonin properties uh, to speak of. Uh, so bear in mind, there might be quote-unquote false positives uh, in this case. Thinking about the next part of a patient's workup would be lab values and, and what helps and what doesn't. I know there's a big book somewhere of all the lab tests you could ever think of ordering and they get sent out to some lab somewhere. But I think some are higher yield than others and some give us specific information when we manipulate the numbers. I think a BMP is a great place to start and an EKG is a great place to start. So we'll just touch on um, laboratory uh, and other ancillary testing briefly here. Uh, we'll probably cover this in more depth uh, in a future session. In terms of what you're going to order has to be guided somewhat by uh, what your clinical suspicion is. And frankly, uh, since just about anybody could be listening to this, it's going to be also governed uh, by the resources of your environment and your particular facility. Now here at our institution, for example, uh, we can quickly obtain levels of ethylene glycol and methanol within a few hours. Uh, that's frankly not available even at other large uh, institutions. But to follow up on Dr. Darwin's comment, certainly an EKG is useful in all patients. Uh, you can see the presence of altered intervals of the QRS or QTC variety. Uh, look at aspects of heart rate, heart block, uh, and that can be done pretty much in any clinical environment. Uh, the serum chemistry also gives you a wide variety of information. Uh, it can be your first clue to the presence of metabolic acidosis, uh, impairment of renal function, hyper or hypoglycemia as well. If you have the ability to check uh, serum osmolality at your institution, then that in conjunction with serum chemistry can, for example, come up with an osmol gap. In terms of Testing for specific agents uh, in terms of toxicology screens, that's a much larger topic, which we'll likely cover in a future session. Uh, but uh, I'll throw out briefly that you need to know what kind of test you're ordering at your institution uh, and uh, what form of test is it. Is this some sort of antibody-based assay such as EMIT or ELISA protocol, uh, or is it something more specific using um, thin layer chromatography or mass spectroscopy for uh, item identification? Uh, but again, that's going to be a topic for a future discussion. Um, I want to thank you for listening here, and uh, stay tuned for more Talks Talk. Well, thank you for joining me on this special supplement edition of Talks Talk. This is Matt Zuckerman, fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology, the Department of Emergency Medicine. You can reach us, um, as always, online at TalksTalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G, or subscribe to us in the iTunes store. If you have any tox-related questions or experiences that you want to ask about, feel free to go to that website, click on Contact Us, and you can ask us questions, and we'll try and address them on the show. Additionally, on the show webpage, you can subscribe to our Twitter feed or our Facebook page. Thanks for tuning in. This is Matt Zuckerman with Talks Talk. Talk.